preaching a lot of those myself. Bless you guys, but it's absolute insanity. But you may say, um, why? Why is that uh, kind of relevant to this morning? But um, it's because today I think in our study we'll see uh, together some of the elements that underpin an often said Christian adage. I don't know if you've heard this, if you've been around Christians a while, if you're still just starting your journey on coming to faith. Um, you'll hear this said quite often. The Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. The Christian life is a marathon, not a sprint. In fact, my wife, who is a very good runner, um, almost kind of infinitely better than I am, often can't come to grips with the way that I run. Um, the most I've ever run recently is about five miles. But she can't understand why I kind of have all this energy to run the last 300, year, 300 yards at 100 k's an hour. Just literally, Aah! she said, you should have used that in the middle. You shouldn't have that at the end. If you've run well, if you've run with the goal in sight and you've run as you should run, and she should know because she's far better than me and has done it professionally almost, is you've got to hold in mind the length of the race and, and, and run like that. Don't, don't run a five-miler as if it's a 1,500-yard. There's, there's dynamics there. And so she often has a go at me, and um, it's one of the areas where she is far better than me, um, one of about two. So... Um, 200, uh, and so she, she kind of, that's her chance to have a go at me and say, you should be better, come on, think straight. And so there's a mindset, there's a difference in your understanding between sprint running and marathon running. And as we get into chapter 11 and chapter 12, just quickly, chapter 12 is a list of uh, the kings that uh, Joshua took down, which is pretty impressive, um, but uh, we're not going to actually go in there, I could just read, it's kind of like a, a list uh, um, and this is who he took on, and this is who, and it's literally one. The king of Jericho, one. The king of Ai, one. The king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of jo So literally, um, this is Joshua just taking the land that God had promised them and uh, just involved in war for a long period of time. But as we read through Joshua 11, uh, we read that almost... Almost, and, and we've been going through this book for several, several weeks now, but you would think after Joshua 10, this uh, um, southern confederacy, this group of uh, kings um, from, from the, uh, the south kind of come together to attack him and take him down. He sorts that out with his army. There's great victory. And you can almost imagine in their heart there must have been a sense of, ah, just want to chill now. He's probably hopeful that rest would come to him. And then we get straight into chapter 11, and this is what we read. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent word to Jobab, king of Maiden, to the kings of Shimron and Ashaph, and to the northern kings who were in the mountains in the Arabah, south of Kenorath, in the western foothills, and in the Nathoth door on the west. Sounds so much like Lord of the Rings. I love it. To the Canaanites in the east and the west, um, more like Lord of the Rings sounds more like this because that's obviously what Tolkien was trying to do. Uh, to the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, and Jebusites in the hill country, and to the Hivites below Hermon in the region of Mizpah. They came out with all their troops and a large number of horses and chariots, a huge army as numerous as the sand on the seashore. All these kings joined forces and made camp together at the, at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. Oh gosh, could I not have had a couple of days break and maybe have gone on a holiday? straight away the northern kings get together and they are ready for an all-out attack on Israel. If you read Josephus, the Jewish historian, he believes that the size of this army was the greatest army ever mounted against Joshua 
And basically, it would have made up about 30,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 horses, and 20,000 chariots. So suddenly, Israel is about to get literally opened up on. There is just mental madness taking place, ready to go against Israel. And you can imagine, um, one of the commentators says, um, these were fearsome, forceful, hard-hearted foes. These weren't just a bunch of ninny-nannies who were just like, oh, these, these were powerful, warring people. And this amazing point comes through that's so important to us as people. Listen to this as we try and follow God, as we learn what it is to worship Jesus. Joshua and Israel were about to learn that victory over the southern coalition had been cause for rejoicing, but was not an excuse for relaxing. Tougher challenges lay ahead. There would have been one thing, like in a marathon mindset, going through Joshua's mind as he suddenly called the troops together again, don't give up. And that would be my heart to you today. The title of the sermon is, so it's victory you want, is it? Fight faithfully to the very end. So it's victory you want, is it? Do you want to be a failure? In your Christian walk, do you want to be one of those that get beat up and time out? No, we all want to be victorious in our Christian life. We all want the promises and the rewards that are offered to us. So fight faithfully to the very end. Isaiah 12 verse 2 is this wonderful chapter of Scripture that relates here. When it's about this waiting, it's about this patience, it's about this not giving up marathon mentality. And Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2 tells us this. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. I just want to quickly say, as we go through these passages in Joshua, which can be very challenging to us in our, and almost offensive in our contemporary sanitized culture, I fear we may be distracted by the war and the military elements of these passages and not see the powerful principles that are there for us as people. I want to say this, and you just got to hold on to this as true. And this is what's true about God. God's judgment is just. God's patience is great. And God's authority is absolute. As we read these passages, God's judgment is just. God's patience is great. And God's authority is absolute. And I just want to make some brief points this morning that we must come to understand as we make this journey of living life without the fear. And as we look into 11 verse 6, the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them because by this time tomorrow I will hand all of them over to Israel slain. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. So Joshua and his whole army came against them suddenly at the waters of Miram and attacked them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel. And it goes on about taking and capturing Hazor, this big city, putting its king to the sword. And then it goes on about taking all these other cities. And if 11, 11 verse 15 is this wonderful, important verse for us as people of God. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Mo Moses commanded Joshua to see that. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Moses gives some commands. The Lord commanded jo Moses and Moses commanded Joshua and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. He left nothing undone. He obeyed to the very end. So Joshua took this entire land, and it continues. And then it says, Joshua waged war against all these kings for a long time. 
In fact, if you work it out, you can work it out according to Caleb's age in chapter 14. He's 85, which he would have crossed the river at a certain age. They warred incessantly for seven years. Seven years of war. They warred for a long time. And it says, except for the Hivites living in Gibeon, not one city made a treaty of peace. The option was there, but they never took it. When the Israelites who took them all in battle, okay, averse in the sovereignty of God, for it was the Lord himself who hardened their hearts to wage war against Israel so that he might destroy them totally, exterminating them without mercy as the Lord had commanded Moses. And it finishes, so Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. Then the land had rest from war. Can I just make a few points this morning briefly and then I'd love us to worship again together. Firstly, God's promises are all true. I'm going to say that again off the back of what uh, um, Gareth shared with us as well. This is a true statement. God's promises are all true. None of them are false. None of them are half-hearted. And none of them will not be fulfilled. God's promises are all true. Promises like this, that if you are in Christ, you are no longer a slave to sin. Promises like you are loved with an unparalleled immensity. No one will love you the way Christ will love you. That's true. You are united to Christ. That's true. You are perfect in the sight of God. No longer needing to work up self-righteousness to maybe somehow please God and those around you. You are perfect in His sight. You're no longer exposed to the righteous anger of God against disobedience when he chooses to judge those that have said, keep your agenda and your plan. I'm in charge. I'm God. You're not. You will not be exposed to that. That promise is true. You're adopted. You are a child of God. Every rich promise and reward that is promised to Jesus as the unique son of God is yours. You are adopted into this family. That's true. You are heirs of all the riches of Christ. And the list goes on. Those promises are true. Romans 8, 28. um, Jeremiah, where it talks about Jeremiah 29. My plans for you are good and for you to be prosperous in in a spiritual dynamic sense. that, That nothing will come against you that you cannot put up with. All those promises are true. But what we must note is that the predominance of them are spiritual promises. He doesn't promise this car and that car. He doesn't promise wealth. He doesn't promise a life without difficulty and sorrow and ups and downs. He doesn't promise those things. You can't find them in Scripture, even if certain Bible teachers are telling you you can. That's an abuse of the text. It's not there. And you see, not only is that, but that's why the Israelites missed it. When Jesus came, if you read Isaiah chapter 9, you hear about wonderful counselor, prince of peace, upon whom the governments of all people would be upon his soul. soul. I've had this problem since I was young. Shoulders instead of soldiers. Upon his shoulders, the governments, what did they expect? What were the Israelite people looking for? Someone who would crush the Romans and give them back their inheritance. They missed it. They were looking for physical promises. They were looking for physical things. And it wasn't what Jesus came to do. His spiritual promises, promises of a relationship with God, eternal life, and they're all true. Fact. Rafa Benitez. Fact. And the question I ask is, how can I, how can you, how can we, how can I be certain 
that that's a fact, that I have received these promises? Well, it's this truth, because Christ's victory as our eternal Joshua have won and got those promises for us. It's because of Christ's victory. Listen to me when I read this, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 and 25, tell us about what Christ has won. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and 5. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Mark Driscoll so powerfully in um, one of the Excavate meetings about six weeks ago spoke so powerfully about how we still picture, even in our worship, Jesus as the peasant who went to the cross. That is not who Jesus is today. Let me give you a picture of our Lord, our reigning glorious King from Revelation 19 as He is today and why we must not fear the enemy, why we must not think that maybe He is too weak, too pathetic, too beaten up to fulfill His promises. Listen to this. Revelation 9, verses 11 through 16. I saw heaven standing open. Revelation is about seeing apocalyptic things in the future, but it's also about seeing things he saw in the vision that are current. And he sees this. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Mark Driscoll makes this point. If you're riding after making war on a horse that's white and clean, you must have just beaten up the enemy really quickly. He says when someone rocks up in white to have a bit of a go at you, it's time to start getting scared. The armies of heaven, the armies of heaven. Do you know that Jesus says when Paul lops, oh, when Peter, Paul, when Peter lops off the ear of someone, of course he just picks it up and heals it. Um, he says to Peter, you don't think I could call legions of angels right now to sort this out? Legions are figures in Romans, which is, is at least a thousand. Twelve legions of angels. Could I not just now say 12,000 angels? Bang, let's get rid of anyone. That's making a go at Jesus right now. But that's who he leads. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's who he is now. He is not the peasant pauper, beaten up and abused and bleeding and bloody, broken on a cross. He had to do that to achieve the victory, but now he is victorious and he is that Jesus. So when you read this, how do I know the promises are true? Because I know who I'm serving and I know who's in charge. Romans 8, 37 through 39. Now in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He is the living, reigning Christ. His victory is altogether glorious, altogether majestic. It is all-encompassing and unique. 
listened to these words from a very unsuspected source. When I read it, I was like, huh? Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself founded empires. But upon what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ alone founded his kingdom upon love. And at this day, millions of men would die for him. Napoleon Bonaparte. Napoleon. And what that brings out and what that rings and what that leaves hanging in the air is this truth. That it is not physical or territorial victory in the sense that Jesus now wants us as UK Christians to just claim the land of the UK for Jesus and, uh, you know, kill the Islams. Kill the, it's, that's not what it is. It's nothing to do with what it is. It's spiritual victory. And that's what rings true. It's this, it's this totally radical, otherworldly kind of victory. A kingdom built on love and truth and mercy and justice. This is not about, we can, we can sometimes adapt the promises of victory that Jesus gives. This happens in a lot of churches, been on a couple of websites just this week, where churches are using a lot of Old Testament promises, particularly in context to Israel, for modern day believers. That is very, very, very dangerous. And I, with, along with Andy and others, will guard against those, those false truths. Use another word if you want. But we've got to be careful. That's not what the promises are about. They aren't so that we should have the riches and the rewards here, that we should have the best homes, the best. Well, it's not what those are about. And some of us get those things, but part of it must be in our worship to God anyway. We must be careful not to adapt it to some sort of territorial national conquest. It's not. But then you have this truth. All of God's promises are true. Because Christ has won them for us, and then we live life in this age. We live life in a secular culture where sometimes your faith as a Christian is declared absurd. Are you having a laugh? Christian, oh gosh, you must be so ignorant, so unintelligent, and unable to see what's really true. A secular culture. An amoral society, not immoral <laughs> We've gone past immoral, my friends. We've gone to amoral. In other words, morality, there's not some sort of, it's just amorphously, messed uply, there's just no morality. It's not just immoral, it's amoral. Our views on sexuality. What? Same-sex relationships, you're not going to allow, what? You intolerant bunch of so what? How can you have that view? Our views on marriage. Our views on money and so forth, they get mocked, they get attacked. We, we're living in a culture that is amoral. We live in a fractured society where our desires for relationship, for community and family are just distorted and wrecked. So many of us come from homes ravaged with brokenness. We're in a fractured society. We're living as Christians when we're born again with an ever-renewing mind. So we live in a secular culture, in a, an amoral society, a fractured society, and we live with an ever-renewing mind. Romans 12 verse 1 and 2 says, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. We start this journey as Christians. Some of you become Christians very recently. Some of you, particularly if you become Christian later in your years of life, 
you start with a whole thought system that is built on non-biblical, even biblically void. Andy and I were talking about this. They said their, their small group, their explore group spoke through the fact that we're now living in a culture where sometimes we throw out so much that we just take for norm that non-Christians have absolutely no clue on. I guarantee you could ask most young people on the Meriden estate how many testaments are in the Bible. They would not know the answer to that question. They are thoroughly biblically void. And that's how we come into faith. We're born again. God does this miraculous work of making us alive. But our minds are just built on non-biblical foundations. And so while we're trying to live the Christian life, we're trying to transform our minds. In fact, the Bible says we have a hostile mind to Christ before salvation. And so that gets in the way. That is part of it. And we live with a spiritual enemy. And he was at work this morning. I'm sorry if that sounds a bit over the top. He was at work this morning. We had an incident that I just, I literally cannot believe. In the Lord, in the Lord I'm, I'm astounded today. One commentator says this, When we are on God's side, we are engaged with Him in an ongoing warfare with sin and Satan. And again and again, Paul in his writing, very clever, wise man, so don't knock him. He writes about being engaged in spiritual warfare. Ephesians 6, put on spiritual armor. 2 Corinthians, we fight not with worldly weapons, but we fight with spiritual weapons, disarming, disarming lies and false truth and oppression. And so what we have is God's promises are true. Jesus has won, the eternal Joshua has won the victory, but we live life in this age. And what that can do is just almost blur up and scrape away and eradicate our trust and our belief in those first two things. And what happens, they work in unison to attack our faith in the promises of God and to almost never actually believe in God. And what we can do is give up halfway and fade into some midlife backseat Christianity that is almost lifeless. I watched the leaders that led my youth group that so enthralled me and caused me to consider becoming a Christian and within that context became born again. I watched them fall away one by one. Because of living life in this age and not fighting faith to the very end. So we need, and I'm finishing on this, wholehearted obedience and fighting faith. In Joshua eleven fifteen, 15, I want to highlight that promise again. It says this, Joshua 11, verse 15. As the Lord commanded his servant Moses, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone. He conquered because he obeyed. One commentator says, this is the most important thing ever said about Joshua in the whole book. He was obedient. It takes us back to Jericho when we're wondering when God, Joshua's going, huh? March around it seven times and blow some trumpets. That's a bit much. March around 13 times. But he was obedient and the walls fell. John chapter 14, verses 23 through 24. John, 1 John uh, 3 tells us again and again, it's about obedience. It's about obedience is how we love God. And it seems like such an unattractive aspect of Christianity. But in our obedience, I look at my son Malachi. Often the things that Malachi loves are things that I have to try and bring him into shape. Things that he think will make him happy, i.e. not eating his dinner, cashing in on sweets all the time, seeing what's in the bin and whether it's edible. <laughs> Yesterday, picking up old hardened bread. We had put out the birds for three days before and not understanding why his dad said that's not good to eat. 
His thoughts on the promises of God, his thoughts of what would be good, sometimes aren't good. And so the God is the same with us. Sometimes what we think is not what's good for us. And God asks us to be obedient. I've got so much more to say, but I want to be short. I just want to say this. Hold in mind the promise, the prize, the rest and the reward. Joshua eleven twenty three. So Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel. We have such a glorious inheritance that awaits us. We have such a marvelous, wonderful rest that is coming to us. We can live in the rest of peace with God now. But we're going to have to have a marathon mindset, my friends. As a Reformed theologian, I believe that actually those who come to faith will live in faith to the very end. And if they fall out of faith, it may mean that they never had faith in the first place. You keep on fighting. Sometimes it is nothing but perseverance. But it can be joyous perseverance when you've got a mindset that's built on marathon. When maybe like Simon Slater must have done sometimes on the 20-mile mark, I am enough of this. Thinking, no, another six miles and 380 yards. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. And we, sometimes we need that mindset, brothers and sisters. We need the mindset of just fighting faith so that we can claim all the glorious promises of God. And I hope today, one commentator says, it's always too soon to quit. It's always too soon to quit. Don't quit. And if you were thinking of quitting this morning, whether it was on your marriage, on your business, on your Christian walk, please, 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 would you speak to the ministry team once you've done worshiping. We're going to start worshiping. Take the offering. Let me just praise God for that now. Lord, thank you so much for what you're doing in this church. Thank you so much for what is happening through the giving.